0: Stay up on the real culture of Detroit by tuning in to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network weekly. Music, art, business, comedy, and never-before-told stories from the people of Detroit. This is the Detroit is Different Podcast Network, the culture of an American classic city. You're listening to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network.
1: All right. We are back in effect in the Detroit is different studios. And this is very unique because one of the people on the Detroit is different podcast network that is a cohort, uh, an accomplice, a partner <laughs> in solidarity. Indeed. You know, uh, it, sometimes a, a Cody, <laughs> if we ever go down for the count. Uh, okay. Frida Sampson is in full effect. How are you, Frida?
2: I am good. What's going on, Kari? How you doing today?
1: Everything is good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for uh, being here and to turn things around. Generally, Black Coffee, our podcast we share, talks about Black history, uh, what's happening in Black history from that perspective, um, and this time around, we're talking about somebody that has spent not a lifetime in Detroit but definitely impacted many of many lives and that is your father you are running the institute and coming up May 19th 2018 you're going to do a great celebration in his honor where you're releasing a book and bringing in people and yeah. people are going to sing his praise and <laughs> speak the doctrine of the great friend G Sampson
2: yeah yeah that's what i'm looking forward to it's it's going to be a great time a time that has certainly come. Uh, long time waiting, but we are glad that, that it is upon us. It's good.
1: Okay, so uh when we think Fred Sampson, we think Tabernacle, mm-hmm. off rip. Mm-hmm. And uh, little did I know, as thumbing through the book, it's like weird. I got to interview as you as if I don't know a lot of this now, because I was reading some of the book, and I've been interacting with you. Like, I think every... Almost every week this year. I'm I'm interacting with freedom, which is dope. More freedom is good. It's good. <laughs>
2: I feel that way about Carrie. More Kari the better. <laughs> yes.
1: So uh let's let's I'm I'm gonna play dumb here with this question, but what led the Sampson family to the city of Detroit?
2: So my dad uh accepted the pastorate at Tabernacle Missionary Baptist Church in seventy one. He was pastoring in Louisville, Kentucky. And, you know, I don't know if there was a particular uh aha, but, you know, he was a man of just a lot of vision. And Mm -hmm. I think Detroit was his next. It was a bigger city with more opportunity and more unique challenges and and just a way for him to grow his ministry in uh, in a space that could grow with him. And, um, you know, I was nine years old when we moved to Detroit. And all I knew was that I was leaving my best friend Susie mm-hmm. Cochran on, uh, on on 950 Southwestern Parkway, where I lived and I didn't know all the particulars uh, of why we were moving. But what I know is that when dad landed here, when we got here as a family and when he got here and assumed his role as pastor, this was home. This was his place. This is where all, of, all roads of his ministry led him here to Detroit. And this is where he spent the most of, of his ministry, 30 years.
1: Okay, 30 years and 1971 was a unique time as 1971 actually predates what was the biggest shift in Detroit black history ever and that's the election of Coleman Young Mm -hmm. so your dad gets here in 71 what was the temperature and what was the climate did he ever talk a little bit about like where was Detroit because this is post rebellion right? Uh, this is definitely uh, a lot of the white flight that has been labeled was was gone way it, gone it was black existence that's right from white flight to black existence and the chocolate city was in full effect and the the growing of black leadership was coming to life
2: yeah yeah well he did not talk a lot about it um in hindsight you know i was a little girl and perhaps that was not um that was not his way to engage in all the, the mm-hmm. political nuances and realities that existed in 71. But watching at a periphery, as a little girl will watch her father, he was most certainly uh, in full immersion around what was going on in the city. By that I mean that he came in with sleeves rolled up, uh, becoming a, a part of uh, New Detroit, I believe sat on the board at New Detroit, he and and, and uh, Mary Young were friends, mm-hmm. and um, they engaged each other frequently through conversations, of which I have no idea what those conversations were, but I would imagine that they were very interesting, uh, to be honest with you. And, you know, a few years later, he became the president of NAACP in Detroit, and so he, he this was his time for his career, and this is where he really could grow his wings you know, when he was in Kentucky, he was um, a civil rights uh, activist and, and very much involved in movement building. And I think that Detroit and Tabernacle was the natural kind of transition for his own voice, if you will. But he came, he came into a hotbed of opportunity, a hotbed of challenges. And, uh, you know, and he was in it. He was in it. And one of the things that I loved that I get now more as an adult than I really fully understood when I was younger was the way he managed to always engage young people. Mm -hmm. That uh, he knew the power of young people. Uh, He Mm -hmm. saw it for himself with the Civil Rights Movement in Louisville and, and the work he did with young people there in movement. But he really brought that here, and he was so committed to grooming young people to be, in that narrative that's what's going on in black detroit in 71 forward and when we talk about the movement
1: your father engaged with so many different people Uh, i met your father through reverend milton henry uh, who definitely his work with the republic of new africa his work with uh, the uh, cuban refugees his work with i mean reverend uh, Judge Crockett, his work with Malcolm X, his work with Martin Luther King, like it, it all intersected, and your father was engaging almost at a crossroads of uh, when we think about that, even where Tabernacle mm-hmm. was and is, like the that's the the hotbed of good preaching <laughs> when we think about Detroit and, the, and these historic figures that's that right. are just walking up and down those neighborhoods, you right. know Claremont, Joy, Limwood, uh, that that. Reverend Mm -hmm. Jeremoji from the Shrine of Black Madonna, Mm -hmm. Reverend Franklin, uh, New Bethel Baptist Church. And then your father steps right in the tabernacle and expands the membership
2: exponentially. Yeah, it went from 1,200 to 5,000, like, overnight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and you know, I get all weepy and, and reminiscent, weepy in a good way, because Detroit certainly at one point was absolutely the hotbed of amazing preaching by mm-hmm. black men and women and principally black men right because mm-hmm. we're talking about an era where that was uh, more than norm uh, Not that the sisters weren't doing it But the sisters were holding it down in different kind of ways and not quite as visible uh, from the perspective of preaching pastoring, but you know there was uh, Just it, it was so rich you could go almost anywhere and receive some preaching that was going to do your soul good and may and may do your body good because you know you know that your body's in this fight, you, mm-hmm. this fight for uh, truth and justice. And and you're right, Dad. Dad came right in, and um, you know, let me just be honest, and this is fully unbiased. He was the baddest preacher ever. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, echoing that same
1: sentiment, uh, is, is a man that I'm still to this day. I, I can't believe that my whole lifetime. I was traveling back and forth to Chicago,
2: mm.
1: and my aunt never took me to go see Jeremiah Wright and Jeremiah Wright specifically said this your father, the way he looked up to your father mm-hmm. uh, and and Reverend Wright will be in attendance May nineteenth uh, to give words on your father and his impact and the legacy of your father and and how to implement the legacy moving forward i think i think one of the best examples is is in frida samson and <laughs> <in> the work <laughs> you do but uh we need to feed off of that energy as well but jeremiah wright was like yeah you know i, I was looking at reverend adams mm-hmm. martin luther king and i was like okay this is where i need to go met your father changed everything
2: yeah well you know i i i've scrolled through pictures from uh long ago and this was about a, this was a couple years ago i, I came across a photograph of Dad and Dr. Wright sitting next to each other in what was uh, called the Moorish Room inside Tabernacle, where Dad had uh, had invited him to preach in the 70s, right? This is before the world, well, certainly before my experience and understanding of of Dr. Wright was in play, and I mean, Dr. Wright had the big afro. I mean, he was he was definitely rocking, um, yeah, that kind was, of that, that militant look. Yeah, it was. That was three <laughs> days ago for sure. <laughs>
1: I don't know if the, he, he will definitely need
2: the blowout kit for today. <laughs> and, and I don't quite know if the kit can do it today, man, because you got to have some hair to work with that to make that work, right? But, uh-huh. Yes. But, um, you know, so I say that because they, they were in each other's lives and, and as colleagues, you know, Dr. Wright's obviously younger than my dad, but they've known each other for a very long time. And Dr. Wright has been a dear, a dear I call him friend, father, soul, to me s- for the last 20 something years. And, um, but I came in late to the friendship that they already had. I just began oh. to really understand it and explore it as I got older and as I started doing work with the church and doing uh, conferences and programs that would allow me to be able to invite Dr. Wright and get to know him more closely. And he is, he is indeed for me personally, uh, a dear, dear friend. And I'm just so blessed that he's in my life but and and so one of the jokes that, that that Dr. Wright and my father had, particularly in the latter years, when I was now engaging Dr. Wright on a different level um, in his ministry, was that, and it, we actually talk about this in the book, mm-hmm. was whenever Dr. Wright was in town preaching for whomever, Dad would always know he was in town because I would disappear and start going to church uh, (laughs) Monday through Friday evenings, which would not happen if Dad was doing Mm -hmm. a revival in Detroit. Mm -hmm. You know, I figured I could hear Daddy anytime, Mm -hmm. you know, which was true, because I could. But um, whenever whenever Jeremiah Wright was in the house, I was somewhere listening and learning from him because of Mm -hmm. not only the obvious wisdom and and genius historical, the breadth of historical knowledge that he has, but because he's so real. You know, Mm -hmm. he just is who he is. And to be able to see that kind of genius coupled with that kind of humility, you just want to bask in it. It is that. You want to bask in that.
1: Yeah. And your father touched the lives of so many other young men that uh, right now have the pulse of not just congregations, but the world is looking at a lot of these people. Yeah. Um, just uh, last week or two weeks back, one of my big homies and Luther Keith. He was like, well, yeah, you know, my mom would, would go to, this is my Luther Keith impression, my mom would go to the, uh, <laughs> go to the church every week. <laughs> so, so I was like, for real? <laughs> I was like, I had no idea. He was like, give me some more of those. <laughs> so, so I gave him, some, um, gave him some of the flyers and everything. And it's a lot of people, especially young men that now are uh, older men mm-hmm. that have taken lessons from your father, the relationship with your father, and expanded in growth and, and wisdom in applying this. Some of these men you're bringing to the event May nineteenth, so you can yeah. share.
2: Yeah, I I'm just uh, two of those men, uh, which who will be with us along with Dr. Wright, uh, Dr. Reverend Dr. Frank Thomas, who is just one of the most thoughtful uh, theologians of the 21st century. Uh, century. Just he, he is without. Contemporary in his theological exploration, uh, his compassion—he's—he's he's a quiet storm, you know. He is not necessarily the one that you would look to for hooping because that's not who he is. But he will drop some knowledge so intense in in your world that you you have to you're unpacking it a week later, um, and and so I'm delighted that he's going to be able to come. Uh, Dr. Thomas uh, is the professor at Christian Theological Seminary, and one of the things that he's done that is phenomenal that I celebrate and and, and, admire is that he has created the first Ph.D. program in the world around black preaching and sacred theology, a Ph.D. program around black preaching and sacred theology, just the idea of that. Just makes me levitate because it is a again it's a time that has come. We have got so much uh, beauty and wisdom and thoughtfulness and genius in our own community by way of the narrative preached word. That to be able to pull it together in a academic uh, setting and really unpack that, and then to create some some discourse and community engagement and all the things that are coming with this program. Um, You know, it's visionary, to say the least. So he'll be there. And then, of course, the amazing um, Reverend Dr. Frederick Douglas Haynes III. Uh, Freddie grew up watching Dad in a different way than Frank did. Frank was an adult when he engaged Dad. But Freddie knew Dad from when when he was just a teenager. And um, so to have both of them in the house... Uh, and, and then Daddy J, as we call him, the Reverend Doctor, uh, will be just an amazing time. It will be a mighty time for Ecumenical Theological Seminary, uh, a game changer, I believe, in that uh, to have those, those three individuals uh, impart wisdom, knowledge, and spiritual truth uh, will be a high time.
1: So when you talk about this and the whole concepts of
2: black theology, uh,
1: that naturally leads to many people going right into uh, what's most known in the idea of James Cone. Mm. You know, a lot of people, you know, this is, uh, I guess, what the roots would be uh, when you and I were talking in, in our first podcast mm-hmm. with uh, with Calvin Moore. He spoke a little bit into this. Uh, your father's takes on this and, and then bringing that in reference to the lives of the black community.
2: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Dr. Cohn, um may he rest in heaven forever. Uh he his voice so brilliant um and so poignant in his understanding and exploration of black theology. Uh and as he as he has uh, eloquently said, he convicted all of us by saying that you know Jesus was a black man. He bottom line that thing. Jesus was a black man. And his, and his perspective around that was because Jesus aligned himself with the oppressed. And he aligned himself with the very struggles and the very issues that black people are dealing with today. Jesus was a black man. And, and, and while that is going to sound incredibly revolutionary uh, thinking to some, I mean, let's think about geography. Let's think about the context of physically where Jesus walked. Uh, to understand that his hair of wool is not indicative of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed individual, and so for Dr. Cones to be able to uh, understand the depth uh, and the complexity of Jesus's life and meaning, and it, in relationship to Black people, I think really had a huge effect on on uh, his peers and those who looked up to him for generations, and you know, I don't know um, the relationship between my father and Dr. Cohn. I don't know if they knew each other well or knew each other really at all because I, I have not heard those stories. But I do know that you can't be a black preacher and not in some way or shape or form not be informed or influenced or um, affected by the, the Reverend Dr. Uh, James Cohn. He, he will just be missed. He was a giant. And your father's
1: sermons, I, I, at least one I definitely remember is is on the whole praying to white Jesus, <laughs> and you don't need to be doing that as a black person <laughs> <And> so this, <laughs> these things stand out and, and it's a couple of sermons that stand out as I'm not definitely not Bible thumping church going every week, yeah, yeah, uh with that being said, your father. Deliver messages in certain ways. Uh, his, his perspectives on politics, his perspectives on community, his perspectives on leadership, and even his perspectives on household mm-hmm. uh, were all very, very practical. Mm-hmm. Where I feel like I, I didn't need to be walking around with a with a dictionary in 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 the church, mm-hmm. but also useful. Where I didn't feel like okay, this seems like it's it's a show, but nothing that. I can't take away.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So in the household uh, and in in the community, what role did your dad play?
2: Well, in the household, um, dad was the head of the house. Uh, mm-hmm. But for me, watching him, that never meant that he had to raise up and articulate, I am the head of the household. I never, ever once heard him say in our house, I'm the head of this household. He didn't have to. He was, he stood in a, in the in the space of being a responsible father, a responsible husband, a responsible, uh, tender, gentle man. And because of who he was, convicted by whose he was, he was able to own that without having to articulate that. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that really resonated with me that I will never forget was he said, the moment you have to identify who you are, you are not. Mm -hmm. And so I never have to walk in a room and say, I am a black woman. If I walk in the room, you know I'm a black woman, Mm -hmm. right? And so it was that kind of teaching through example in the house that um, really raised my consciousness about self responsibility and the way you frame your own lit your own life you don't do it by talking about it you do it by being it um daddy was beyond beyond the fact that he was as loving in the home as he appeared to be outside the home and as he was outside the home he was just a uh, he was just a ball he was funny
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh he was uh gentle he he managed to not kill me through all my adolescence <laughs> and mm-hmm. and I was a classic classic with my adolescence behavior um and he and he never missed anything that was important. Mm-hmm. He traveled a lot and so that meant he was in different states probably almost half the year but he never missed the important things in my life uh and even when he wasn't there physically he was always there emotionally he was always there. By phone, you know he—he he was the kind of father that out of out of the clear blue sky would send a, a letter just to say I love you, hmm. you know. Just and and when you're a little girl uh, trying to uh, figure out who you are, and to have a father figure that has that kind of sensitivity, uh, it it is just a tremendous gift. Hmm. Uh, and so that's who he was in the house. Uh, which was a, an absolute mirror of who he was in community. He was that person that did not stand on a, a soapbox and say what you should do. He he planted his feet squarely on the ground and and modeled, exampled, if you will, how we should um, how sh- we should be- we should act and how we should behave and how how we should treat each other, particularly as Christians. When you have a relationship with Christ, then you have a certain obligation to do your very best to be your very best and to have compassion and empathy and so he was uh he was uh, extraordinary at 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 modeling that and
1: also during this time we think about the location of where tabernacle was Mm -hmm. um during that time in the 80s a lot of things were happening throughout the city of detroit um uh, things were becoming, in a lot of ways, a lot more, a lot more violent um, for for some of us. Um, you had the 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 rise, I guess, of what people would say, crack cocaine mm. and, and uh, different different gangs and and like what's so unique about Tabernacle. I think of like two two churches, like like that, just stand out as like those churches that existed in that. In that space, mm-hmm. for for certain communities, I think Tabernacle and Little Rock Baptist Church with Reverend Holly. Okay, so many of the of the you know services for young for young men and and what was happening throughout the community just because of the the landscape over there,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it would touch there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: during this time in the eighties, uh, your father was. Was active still walking and in, in interacting and engaging in the community, um, looking beyond people that were just inside the church doors to engage the community around peace and initiatives. Uh, what was it like uh, as you were witnessing that? Because these are things that I, those snapshots. Because I remember like some of those snapshots with your father, mm-hmm. Mayor Young, and, and Reverend Holly, well,
2: a young Reverend Holly at the time. Yeah. You know,
1: like what was that? What do you?
2: Yeah, he he was definitely about uh, being in community uh in in a way that I think he probably touched as many lives outside of the walls of Tabernacle <clears throat> engaging people walking down the street um challenging young men and and young women, girls and boys uh to to strive for something different by really pouring into their lives, not uh not necessarily Wealth, but point in, but wealth, yeah. The wealth of wisdom, the wealth of presence. You know, uh, I get stopped probably once or twice a week, even now, 17 years, almost 18 years after his passing, where people will share a story with me about how they were walking down the street and Dad was walking so fast, and he would stop and he would talk with them, and he would uh, share a story or say something encouraging, or they would see him in McDonald's or. Whatever, you know, or they'd see him walking around Northland Mall where he mm-hmm. used to get his walk-on sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, his theology was very practical. His his um, engagement, community engagement was very genuine, very authentic. And even when, in the 80s, when there were, well, actually I'm going to back up a little bit because it, it was the 70s where gangs were really, yes. really it, it, ramping up mm-hmm. and becoming mm-hmm. problematic and media was framing black and brown young people as if we were all criminals and all doing harm and tearing up the neighborhoods. And I remember, uh, Kari, like it was yesterday, going to dad (coughs) uh, with some of my friends at Tabernacle and saying to him, listen, we're struggling with the way that TV is portraying us, with the way the media is talking about who we are, because that's not who we are. You know, we're we're not doing these things. And so how do we counteract this narrative? I was... I I don't know thirteen fourteen I can't even remember how I was young. How do we counteract this narrative of of young black people being just you know thugs, mm-hmm. right? And I remember him charging us <clears throat> and saying, "Go back and think about how you want to be seen and heard, and and then come back with me to me with some ideas. And whatever your ideas are." we will support them. And that was the first step of really being heard, that he not only uh, activated a charge, but he first stopped and listened to what it was that we were trying to say. So when we, we did that, we stepped back and we, and we huddled together and we came up with all these kind of ideas of, well, how do we let you know the people in the church and people in the community know that, that some of us are really trying hard to do the right thing? And we came back with him and said that, you know what, we want to have our own club. We want to be able to unite visibly as a counter narrative to what is being heard. And so we want to call ourselves gangs for growth. Well, you know, we're 13, 14, we thought that was clever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And presumably it was back back then. And so he he said, well, let's do that. And so what Mm -hmm. does that mean? And he required us to create a mission statement. We Mm -hmm. had our own like little um, member cards that said Mm -hmm. Gangs for Growth. And what we did was we cleaned up uh, neighborhood houses. Mm -hmm. Uh, We uh, created kind of community program. It was my first immersion into community activism and Mm -hmm. community organizing. And it was because he blessed us with believing us, blessed us with resources and encouragement, and then created uh, a pathway for us to kind of find our voice in that process. That's unique. Uh, I, I definitely know uh, a, a lot
1: of the guys like from this neighborhood, as you know, we're on Clements and everything, just speak to those interactions with your father. Um, his legacy still lives on even through you and the work that you're doing. And this will just be a taste for people to get. So May 19th. What, what's the taste that people are gonna get? Yeah,
2: so the symposium gonna be held, it's going to be held at Ecumenical Theological Seminary which is on Woodward right uh, near the stadiums. And um, Ecumenical Theological Seminary is celebrating its 60th anniversary in existence. And it is really a, a social justice seminary. It is uh, a seminary that is uh, a school of thought for the, the broadness of denominations which is why it's called Ecumenical. And uh, we have, before dad died, he had really begun to get really involved with the school. And so uh, I I am in essence kind of uh, picking up that mantle to to have that engagement. And so we are having our first uh, Frederick G. Sampson Symposium. It's been a long time coming again, and I'm just uh, grateful for it. And it's called, I think I said something, Prophetic Proclamation and Social Activism. And we came up with the title, which wasn't very difficult because one of his um, one of his famous phrases when he was punctuating a sermon or a statement or a thought, he would often uh, kind of round out that thought with uh, "I think I said something," mm-hmm. and that would charge and ignite folk to just really understand that what they just heard they needed to reflect and pause on and so we're going to, to use that and and um, coincidentally, that is also the name of the book that I, I will be uh, unveiling at the symposium. I think I said something, the, the man in the ministry, the life in the ministry of uh, Frederick, jo- Frederick George Sampson II.
1: Okay, so if a person wants to attend, what do they need to do? Uh, how, how do they, you know, find out more information?
2: Yeah, so if they want to attend, they can go on Eventbrite. Uh, registration is $50, and, with, and, and, and your, your time and your energy will uh, include a continental breakfast, a lunch. You'll be able to, again, hear Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright, Reverend Frederick Haynes, and uh, Frank Thomas. But in addition to that, we also have some workshop series with some amazing local ministers, men and women, uh, talking about some very relevant topics. And if you go on Eventbrite and uh, look up ETS or Frederick G. Sampson Symposium, you should be able to track directly to it. But if if you are less comfortable with online registration, uh, we also can. Uh, we also have a physical registration form to fill out. You can send information straight to the school at um, on Woodward, and I can get that address for you in one second. Or you can always email me and we can make we can make that connection. And so my email address is my full name. I'm named after him. It's Frida G Sampson at gmail.com. Uh, f R E D A G S A M P S O N at Gmail.com and I will help make that connection for you.
1: Okay. Now with the Institute, it's uh, the legacies continue. So what's the work that's happening with the institute as it's a collection of uh, of people, spirits, energy that's connected there that uh, people can still engage with. So what's the, yeah. what's the day-to-day uh, as you all continue this work?
2: Yeah, well, you know, our mission is around um, theological education um, and uh, social activism and then the uh, securing of, of Dad's legacy through his works, through the intellectual properties, whether they are our videos or audios or the written word and so the work varies from day to day. Uh, we have engaged seminaries around the country uh, doing different things just to make sure that Dad's legacy is connected with the, the up-and-coming preacher's, pastor's, theologians. So as an example, uh, we have a uh, library collection uh, at Virginia Union in Richmond, Virginia. It's oh. called the Frederick G. Sampson D. Watson um, Collection. And in that collection are his daddy's works and also uh, Dr. Watson's works Mm. but it's also their peers so if you want to hear a C.L. Franklin or if you want to hear a Wyatt T. Walker you can actually go to the library and hear their audio sermons and so that's one collection we have just uh, we have just funded the Frederick G. Sampson scholarship at Christian Theological Seminary so for the next cohort of PhD students uh, for the Black Preaching PhD uh, program, there will be a Frederick D. Sampson oh. Scholar. Very excited about that. Howard University has a lecture series in Dad's name, and we're now building the momentum with ETS. Uh, we are also talking with some other seminaries about some, uh, some opportunities moving forward in the next year or two. So part of the Institute's charge is to really connect Dad's legacy, to again, up and coming uh, preacher, pastor, theologians, so that they can continue the the work and voice of his of his time and of his words uh, through their own ministry. Um, and in addition to that, of course, whatever we can do to have boots on the ground, mm-hmm. you know, and and that looks different just depending upon the day. Okay, so just in reference to this, in today's world,
1: uh, as culture is shifted and the black church is not the institution where, uh, w- where it was once so functional and practical for many of the, uh, many of our people, mm-hmm. A- as even the whole concept of blackness has, has shifted over time um, uh, as the community is so, it's different now. Uh, what role uh, d- 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 does the work of your father and the sermons of your father and the teachings of your father play today with the culture and climate of what you feel you see is happening.
2: You know, in a lot of ways, uh, his words are more relevant today than they were when he spoke them because his words, while empowering um, black people particularly, it really is about empowering people totally. And be, because in, uh, under the under the auspices, the scope of our humanity, uh, that's really where his theological essence really connected. Mm-hmm. So it it so the relevance of, of what he says and what he what he said and did then that still applies today are simply that, you know, the times that we're living in are not that that different than the times that he was living in. And and, and because he had the capacity to really speak in a broader in, in a broader form, uh, when it dealt with just the, the man's human soul uh, really continues to make him relevant, really continues to make his words meaningful and palpable to those who are, whether you're movement building or trying to raise a family or trying to find your own voice or deal with your own struggles or, or fight with with your own physicality, whatever it is that, that might be uh, where you are in life, uh, i have uh, seen and heard and believe for myself that his voice speaks to you as directly today as it did 20 years ago when he was actually walking with us and walking amongst us
1: Hmm. okay and in reference to this um just day to day in your your travels you've done a lot of social justice work uh you've done entrepreneurship uh you've 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 taken on many facets of life and interacted with so many people, Yeah, so many people. So I definitely know your dad has to be so proud just of the, and your mom. Yeah. So um, with this, how have you taken a lot of that work uh, that you've uh, that you witnessed from your dad and applied to your life, yeah. the sermons you've applied to your life, the lessons you've applied to your life, and just the relationship itself? Uh, beyond the, the and it's, it's hard to separate like, okay, my dad's a human being <laughs> from my dad's my dad, but uh,
2: how have you applied that? Yeah. Uh, you know, the inspiration that my mom and my dad uh, infused in me growing up and continue to infuse in me in hindsight uh, and in reflection uh, charge really my, my day-to-day movements um, every day. Uh, I am a unique blend of my mother and my father, And while I talk about my dad more publicly than I do my mom because he was more of a public figure, mm-hmm. I am a fusion of the two of them. my my dad, uh, my dad, very community focused, very uh, Christ-centered, very, very much involved in wanting to make things better. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom, the artist, the the creative thinker, the introvert, the, the one who uh, will step back and observe much more quickly than she would jump out and uh, expound or articulate a particular thought. I am I am the unique combination of the two of them and, and I'm so grateful for that because I do take on kind of the quietness of my mom, but the passion and drive of my dad in terms of wanting to be a, uh, a solution to the community and a solution to uh, Challenges, uh, where they can be looked at as opportunities. And uh, so I, what what they have what they did for me and what they continue to do for me is teach me. You know, when I, I said earlier that you know I would run and hear Jeremiah Wright during a revival more quickly than I would hear Dad, because I always thought that you know I'd have him with me. Mm-hmm. And even though intellectually I knew that that may or may not be the case, when when you're a when you're a daughter of somebody that you just adore, you just think they're going to always be with you, <clears throat> and so it was a significant reality um, for me to have to know that I've lived these last uh, almost 18 years without his physical presence in my life, but I have the gift of having his sermons and both on both video and and audio. So all those sermons that I didn't listen to. Really, mm-hmm. really, when he did them the first time, I now have an opportunity to hear them for myself and hear them with um, wiser ears, with mm-hmm. more lived experience and a greater capacity to really understand uh, what it was he was trying to say. And as I said in the book, uh, the older I get, the smarter he is. It is that um, that gift that continues to infuse me uh, and my spirit and my soul. Uh, just because I have the privilege of being able to go back and listen whenever I want to.
1: Yeah, so uh, with with this, the, uh, the attention and the people, because I'm sure it's going to be people coming in from out of town and all types of things, so what has been the reception of the people that know you and uh, knew your father uh, to just the whole concept of this book and this event?
2: Oh man, it has, the feedback has just been awesome. I mean, people are excited mm-hmm. and just brings my heart so much joy. I'm I'm getting. I'm going to be there. I have other things I've got to do, but I am canceling it because I want to be in the house mm-hmm. for this event. And um, and so that is re- that's so good to hear. It's so good to n- to know that people care and remember. Uh, you know, because the remembran- remembrance is, it's powerful. It mm-hmm. is when as it as long as we can continue to speak the names of our ancestors they they live mm-hmm. right and so to have that kind of joyous uh elation and enthusiasm around this event um encourages me and 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 really gives me the fortitude and the strength to know that I'm doing what I believe in my heart and soul I'm supposed to be doing in this hour and um Honestly, whether it's one person there or 1,000 people there, whatever that number is, whoever's in the building are the ones that are, are supposed to be in the I building. Got you. Yeah, yeah.
1: And I, I'm going to be in effect. Detroit is different. We'll be there. We'll be there. I'll be with a camera in the hand <laughs> and microphones and all of that <laughs> stuff, but I'm going to be there. We appreciate uh, you. Most definitely. Uh, I, I'm going to be podcasting solo as, as uh, Frito B doing our Frida thing, but we're going to get in some good interviews with definitely some of the attendants uh, and engage. It's going to be very interactive. As you have my, um, as I say, she's my, uh, she's, I, I agree with her on so many debates. Have, uh, <laughs> my cousin, Mywa Reynolds, she's yes. going to be there. Uh, Reverend Myra Reynolds from Fellowship.
2: Church. she's going to be amazing. I can't wait to hear her.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is, uh,
2: she's a bad woman. Yeah, a, she's she's serious uh, sister. Is like, yeah. <laughs>
0: like, tell these people about white supremacy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, <not> the <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, she'll be there. Uh, Reverend Wright, um, Yeah, yeah. Reverend Thomas who uh who I've heard before too. Uh this will be something practical, engaging, yeah. and and special. Yeah. So, what's so unique about this and the Detroit is different form of the interview? Uh, I always wrap with three questions, and we can kind of uh, we already know. One of them is the last one generally is who would you rename Woodward after? We are gonna naturally say your dad for this one. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm um, in agreement with that. So the next thing is. Uh, three songs i always say play three songs at the end of the detroit fireworks so what were three songs that your dad really enjoyed
2: wow really really kari okay so yes yeah i can i can give you one for sure maybe two um dad had a a much broader palette musical palette than i did so he loved western music i mean country music and Mm -hmm. classical music he's from the south now yeah, yeah. So I guess that's what it was. What like, it was. <laughs> <laughs> they called
1: it, it. Yeah, it was like local music. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> well, he loved that local music. At
1: the in the uh, in the, in the museum, you know, the the uh, Smithsonian Museum. Yeah. It's so funny. Like in the cultural department, it's like they have this whole uh, display case for Charlie Pride. I was like, this is. <laughs>
2: Oh yeah, that was his boy. He yeah, yeah.
1: He I was like, that was his is, dude. i was
2: like, this is the one Smith Sony <laughs> <laughs> Charlie Pride exhibit,
1: the black museum.
2: That's it. Uh, that's <laughs> it. Yeah, he but you know, country music as he would often say country music it's is just uh is the just blues. the blues with yeah. the twang, right? Yeah. Is. yeah. Like, so um so I, I can't I can't share any particular country song that he loved. I like The Devil Went Down to Georgia, but you didn't ask me what my music was. But one of his favorite yes one of his uh one of his favorite hymns uh ever was uh, sweet hour of prayer. Hmm. And he would often close revivals and just uh, special uh special moments with singing or humming that song. He loved that song. And uh so uh we we acknowledge that song in the book as well. And then of course Blessed Assurance was a, another very important uh but he liked rap, you know, he was so so much further ahead mm-hmm. than I was when it came to this stuff. So if he if he were here to answer that question, he may have he may have different songs for you.
1: Yeah, my um my grandma had um uh <laughs> had your dad singing because my grandma was the minister of music at first Presbyterian with uh with Milton Henry. Oh, okay. So <laughs> every time she'd have him singing just just as I am without one oh, three, sure because that was her. You know the organ. She loved that song. Okay. So, you know he'd always hum that. And uh, this one, this may be a, a tougher one because I generally ask people what was their first car, make and model. What was the first car you remember your dad having?
2: Electra two twenty five. It was blue with a black soft top.
1: I don't even know what an Electra is. What? What? Who is the maker of
2: one? Buick. You don't oh, know man. A, a deuce and a quarter?
1: A deuce in the portrait. <laughs> oh I never God. knew the the actual name. Yes,
2: sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Lecture two twenty. I remember that I was probably four, mm. and I and he loved that car. It was it was a cool car. <laughs> I have to I have to say it was a very bad car. <laughs> yes,
1: there we go. Right. But
2: as he got older, it was all about the Lincoln
1: okay okay mm-hmm. yeah he may have set that trend it was like a uh, the Lincoln the Lincoln pastor the Cadillac pastor. that's right
2: that's exactly right he yeah. was he was the Lincoln pastor the Lincoln pastor town, town and country
1: most definitely yeah most definitely so I I w- we're at the end um this was fun again uh black coffee listeners this is like a, a dual podcast it's on both you should listen to both whether you listen to it on black coffee or or Detroit's Difference feed, uh, Frida and what she's doing. Uh, we, we really just, even though Frida was, was speaking on behalf of Reverend Sampson. Mm-hmm. So this was a lot about Reverend Sampson. Uh, I guess like some, some quick details near the end. Um, you know, some of the classic questions. Where was he born?
2: He was born in, in Mansura, Louisiana. He thought he was born in Port Arthur, Texas, and so he actually went to his grave thinking he was born in Port Arthur, Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't find out until uh, after after he died that it was Mansura, Louisiana
1: hmm. okay yeah. and uh, and they coming up um, coming up where where was most of his time lived? It was down there in Texas.
2: You know, it it really did kind of split up. He was in Texas until he graduated from Bishop College, uh, and then he moved to uh, Washington D.C., where he uh, was at a student at Howard University, and and then to Virginia, and uh, where he was pastor, and then Kentucky, where he was pastor. Detroit was really where he spent probably more time than any of those other places. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Okay. And. And the dc vibe and and meeting your mom what was uh did did he give you i generally always ask especially a man uh what what how did he go about meeting your mom like what what was the did you ever get that story like did he walk over to her and say hey let me get you a cup of coffee what was (laughs) uh what was his game
2: like right right you You know i have to believe the dad had some mad game he had to have (laughs) swag i mean listen he was tall and dark and handsome and Smart, so you know he he was carrying a uh, major swag, but um I only discovered in recent weeks when while working on the book that and i and I have to use my imagination for at least a portion of this. When he was a student at Howard University, his one of his professors had recommended that he go to Shiloh Church because the pastor there was looking for someone to create a Christian education department. Hmm. Uh, that pastor was Earl L. Harrison. Uh, So my dad did. He was able to connect with Dr. Harrison and assume that role as one of the associate ministers. Uh, Dr. Harrison was the father of my mom, Mm -hmm. uh, Earlene Harrison. And so where I have to fill in the blanks is that dad was probably walking down the hallway of the church one day and saw Earlene, who was uh, older than him. Mm-hmm. And thought, yeah, I'm about to, I'm about to run yeah, this I rap guess. on this woman because she's beautiful, right? He
1: was like, uh, can we go over some notes <laughs> right? this, of this? Of this, I was thinking about adding this class I, right. some plan. I was
2: like, ah, I know this, you're right, right. I know right. this, yeah so he never told me the story directly but I, 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 just, I so I have to use my imagination which honestly is probably more fun anyway yes
1: thank God see you're here because your dad your dad had some game. yes right that's or, exactly right or your right. mom had sympathy like oh, yeah. oh let's help this man yeah there's something going on for sure <laughs> somewhere between the two <laughs> so so with that being said I guess um and then convincing your mom uh to, to to move, especially move into a city like Detroit, um, do you remember that conversation? When you first, because everybody that comes to Detroit I always ask like, what was the temperature? Because different people have different takes. Because yeah. the, the media perception of Detroit versus the reality of Detroit. And what's so funny, depending upon where you go and who you engage with, it could be, you know, y- you could live in the RoboCop version of Detroit.
2: Right. But you could right. not. Right, you know? that's right. Um, no, you know, neither one of them ever spoke to that. I, I, I never got a sense from mom that she loved it or, or she hated it. Uh, I did not. But what, again, if if I had to fill in the blanks using my imagination, I would say that there was so much going on in Louisville. And because dad was such a visible activist... There were so many threats on his life. You know, we had multiple uh, bomb threats for our home. There was always something happening that uh, potentially would violate the safety of the family. I would only imagine that my mom uh, was probably okay coming, mm-hmm. and uh, and when she got here, she settled. She settled down. There was uh, there was not a kind of robust. Uh, engagement with community for her she really settled into to mom Mm -hmm. that mom role you know
1: okay and i do just uh just in
2: guilty pleasure as i match the timelines Your,
1: your dad was in louisville around the time when Muhammad Ali was oh, making yeah. his ascension.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. They were they were great friends, as And That's ma- what
1: I was just about to ask. Yeah. Uh, what was the relationship between your dad and Ali? Because he well, then it was Cassius. It Clay. was
2: Cassius Clay for sure, and yeah, they were they were really good friends. Um, they bowled on the same bowling league. In the same wow. League. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Your dad was. Yeah.
1: I can only imagine that trash talk.
2: Oh right, it had to be something <laughs> like incredible. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, young Cassius Clay and a young Frederick G. It was, uh, it had to be something extraordinary. It was at Algonquin Bowling Alley. I remember it bec- I remember it to to this day. The bowling alley. I don't, I don't have a personal, or real recollection of Cassius, um, but I, you know, again, I was very, very little. But I do know that that they were friends. Uh, mm-hmm. The relationship uh, moving forward as as uh, Cassius Clay became Muhammad Ali and then moved on to international fame. Um, I don't know that there was any further engagement once Dad left uh, Louisville. But
1: but I know his prominence in Louisville, and naturally that Clay family, mm-hmm. it just seems like it would have fit. Yeah. Because who your dad was, is, um, and just reading the book, and I'm going to tell people, get the book, it's, it's, some, it's facts that I definitely did not know. Yeah. Um, your, your dad was between, you know, between, like you're saying, the, the Ku Klux Klan, the police, mm-hmm. the your dad was facing a lot when he was in Louisville in his approach towards uh, community engagement, mm-hmm. black rights, versus his approach here in Detroit. Right. So I'm sure that <coughs> what he learned in Louisville impacted his engagement in Detroit, even though the cities were different and dealt with some of the same challenges, but... I'm sure it was a different approach.
2: Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think absolutely that his time in Louisville and and honestly in all the cities really everything really prepared him for his ministry here. What Detroit got was uh, the mature version of of Dad's ministry, a version that had been honed and shaped and and nurtured and 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 kind of needed. By the uh, the dynamics of his lived experience up to his arrival here, and one of one of my memories, one of my recent recollections in my imagination, is even traveling from south to north, and what it meant for a black, a young black man to have to travel from south to north and live in Jim Crow South and pres- and proceed forward to live in the North where. Um, he could only use certain bathrooms, drink out of only certain water fountains, go to uh, only certain clothing stores or diners. You know, in this contemporary thinking, sometimes my approach is that, yes, that was historical, but it's one thing for it to be historical in the general sense, and it's another thing for it to be historical in the sense that that impacted my parents' life. You know, I mean, that's deep for me.
1: Yeah, it's, I tell people often things like that, like it's an idea, as though um, in the shadows of man. We're getting to a more contemporary conversation. It's an idea, as if like you know, uh, racism, quote unquote, Jim Crow slavery was long ago. Right. That was so close. Right. You know, I have a I have a great aunt right now where her mother was born into enslavement. You know, so it's wow. it's it's right there. You know what I mean? Like in right mom was back at a bus when she was visiting family in Florida. You know? And then also, the you know, the, the sundown laws, meaning like black people can't be out past a certain time of night, mm-hmm. uh, were existent and still existent on the books in a lot of these places, you know, even in the Pacific Northwest and some places down south. Like, th- this is so, um, it's looked at as if these are uh, uh, Frames of, of, of a life so distant. Mm-hmm. But that was, like you say.
2: That's you around know, the corner. It, yeah.
1: it, it's right there. Yeah, and it's then right there. also, because a lot of this stuff changed on the books, doesn't mean it changed in the heart. Right. In the ethos. That's so the right. Philosophy of right. a lot of people. Because it's a lot of, you know, things said, well, it's a lot of uh, actions taken that aren't necessarily on the books anymore. Mm-hmm. But very close to those those things. listen
2: your your example of sundown towns, in my opinion, you know, sundown towns well we we certainly know they still exist, but even in cities where they exist and they're not enforced Explic- in the same way, yeah. they are absolutely enforced in an emotional kind of way. They're absolutely f- enforced in a way uh, of safety in a way of making you feel like you're not wanted mm-hmm. uh, after a certain time. this it's enforced in policy
0: mm-hmm. and
2: how and how transportation has shaped itself in this region you know and so uh all of those things we you know if we're not careful we'll romanticize it as if it was as you said so brilliantly an idea long ago it is something that uh, if you scratch the surface would be my reality i mean I, i remember not being able to as a little girl being able to when we traveled for vacation being able to use certain bathrooms i mean this is my lifetime uh and so bec- because because of the color of my skin mm-hmm. where uh my dad had to when we would stop would have to go to the back of a restaurant to get something for us to eat so that he can come back and we'd have to eat it in the car this is my lifetime mm-hmm. right so this is um you know the, the the challenge with history is is a keeping it uh, authentic and truthful and also really understanding that the timeline is much more truncated than we often
1: yes yeah i agree i agree i agree and uh <laughs> also if you have a chance come to this may 19th event i've, I've been telling some of my uh my contemporary younger homies they need nice. to get to this is uh we got certain things existing as uh i guess one of these underlying goof, some goofy rhetoric nowadays is what we call free
2: thought oh, don't get me started he's trying to wind this up we will,
1: <laughs> we will get back to that in black coffee uh, Really, our last black coffee was a lot of free thought going. Yeah. So,
2: <laughs> so, so we will end. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kari. It's always a blast. Yeah.
0: Black coffee is recorded before a live audience every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern at pause located at 736 Luthrope, Detroit, Michigan 48202. Black coffee is a podcast hosted by Kari Fraser and Frida Sampson weekly. Weekly Frida and Kari welcome guests to discuss the rich history of Black leadership, entrepreneurship, artistry, and social justice. Subscribe on Apple iTunes or Google Play to the Black Coffee podcast and don't miss the history of Black Detroit.